ever been flying on an airplane before? Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that the vast majority of you in this room are not aeronautical engineers. Okay? Now, I was talking about this uh, before uh, our services this morning in our, in our prayer circle. And I was like, I'm sure none of y'all are aeronautical engineers. And uh, Charles, who plays keys for us, was like, well, uh, actually, I am. <laughs> Here's what I want to say. Aeronautical engineers understand the physics, the science behind flight, right? And so when they build an airplane, we trust their knowledge that it's actually going to fly. But it still requires faith to step into the plane and go see something that you've never seen before. The same thing is true of the scriptures. There are people that probably, hopefully, uh, if nothing else, maybe I'll convince you a little bit of this this morning, that actually know how to engage with study, do textual criticism and archaeological evidence to let us know whether or not the scriptures we have are actually worth listening to. But scientific knowledge alone cannot get you in the air. That requires faith, faith that aeronautical engineers actually exist, that the science is sound, and we can build an airplane that will get you up and get you down safely, but you still, by faith, got to get on the plane. And the same thing is true of our faith in the words of Scripture and what they call us to. I'll never convince you of faith. This morning, I am going to have a conversation about whether or not this Bible, okay, that we hold to is actually reliable and trustworthy. And I do think that it's an important conversation that we have. But if you are here and maybe a little skeptical of some of the things, uh, I'm not trying to convince you that what's in it and what it says uh, is true. That requires faith, and that's not something I can argue anybody into, and I definitely have no desire to even try to do that this morning. But I do think that as followers of Jesus, who think that this is actually the word of God and worthy of our allegiance and our life, we should ask some really good critical questions. Uh, you guys ever heard of the, uh, the game Telephone? You ever play it like when you're in like elementary school, right? Uh, I, I made some uh, some people sit in the in the front row uh, play that game with me in the last hour. Let me show you the uh, the sentence that I gave them. Ten parents with twelve kids were willing to serve mint chip ice cream if there were no screens in the apartment. Okay, this is one sentence, not the easiest sentence, but it's one sentence. Okay, and I gave it to one person, and it only went down four people. That's it. All right, just four people this morning, and uh, they got. Most of it right. However, um, the number of parents and kids got switched. All right, so that, that was a couple of errors right there. Uh, they added chocolate uh, to mint chip ice cream. Uh, and they uh, said if that there were no screens, in, or the apartment had no screens. Okay? Which then instantly would make you think, wait, wait, we are, what are we talking? Are we talking about, like, screens? Or are we talking about, like, window screens? Okay? Now, that was one sentence in one language, in one culture, at one time with only four people, and we already had multiple discrepancies, all right? 
Isn't it likely then that the Bible, which to the best of our understanding began as an oral history and was then written down and then copied many times over nearly 3,500 years in multiple languages among different cultures, isn't it likely that the Bible is completely unreliable? That's what I want to talk about today. Now, um, let me just give you a bit of a heads up of what you're about to step into, okay? Uh, this is not a sermon. Normally when you come here, uh, I teach you a sermon. Today it's going to feel like a seminar, all right? Uh, this is not going to be how we normally uh, interact um, because I think that it's important to ask and answer some questions that I think really do matter. Uh, so if you're a note taker, today's a great day to like take some notes if you want to. If you're like, yo, 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 I can't write that fast, then grab your phone and you can click some pictures of some stuff that's going to be up on the screen. Uh, there's a few questions that I think are important for us to actually engage with. Um, what about the multitude of mistakes in the Bible? It is argued by scholars that there are 400,000 mistakes in the Greek manuscripts that we get our New Testament from. And guess what? Those scholars are correct. 400,000. Do you know that we have zero extra-biblical evidence that Moses or Joshua ever existed or that the exodus out of Egypt ever happened? That's true. We're going to talk about that. I want to ask the question, uh, what are we supposed to do with those mistakes? That's the question of reliability. I also want to ask the question, can the Bible be verified historically, or is it just a bunch of myths and legends? This is the question of trustworthiness. We'll talk a little bit, well, actually, we won't. Uh, next week, Dr. Gary Burge, uh, one of the foremost New Testament scholars in America today, in, uh, truthfully, in all the world, I was going to be here. He's actually going to answer the question, where the heck did we get our Bible from? Because a lot of folks will tell you, dude, the Bible was thinking made up by uh, a handful of dudes sitting around a room around 300 years after it was actually written. Is that true or not? Dr. Burge is going to deal with that question next week. I'm not going to talk about it this week, but I think it's good that you know that that's coming. Uh, what about the fact that some scholars believe that the Old Testament was written around 200 B.C., not 1400 B.C., like we believe as Christians and also or Jewish brothers and sisters believe as well. Uh, what about that? Is there any way to defend it, to talk about it? How, how do we know? Okay. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to break it down into three questions. One's going to get answered next week okay, by Dr. Burge. How did our Bible come to be? This week, though, I want to deal with basically two main questions. Number one, is what we have before us today reliable and or trustworthy? Can we answer, is, that, is it possible to even answer that question? All right, so within that question, we're going to look at two things, textual evidences and archaeological evidence, what, what scholars would call textual criticism, and then archaeological evidence. And then the second major question is, what does Scripture say about itself? Austin shared a little bit about this last week, but I think it's good that we engage uh, with this, uh, albeit briefly, uh, near the end of our seminar this morning. Uh, last week, Austin kicked off this series, which we've entitled, You Believe This? 
by talking about what the Bible actually is. In fact, he gave us a definition. I doubt it was originated in Austin's mind, uh, but he's, that's where I heard it from, so I'm going to give it to him. Uh, Austin said, The Bible is a library of books, both human and divine, that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Okay? It's a great definition. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. But at the end of the day, knowledge does not equate to faith. Faith is what all of us have to step into if we're going to experience whether this thing is actually true or whether it's just an interesting ancient book. So let's dive right in this morning, okay? Uh, I will admit, as I've studied the questions that I've posed to you today and some of the difficulties, what I've found is that um, not only do those questions then open up a whole bunch of other questions, but I've learned that the data is way more vast than I ever imagined that it was. It's a reason that they teach entire courses on this, that people have been studying it for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay? Uh, Not only is it more vast than I imagined, it's actually more nuanced and incomplete than I initially felt comfortable with, if I'm being honest. However, when understood in context, it's actually way more impressive than I anticipated. So, here we go. Number one, how do we know if what we have today in our hands is accurate or reliable, okay? The Bible is 100% accurate, especially when thrown at close range. I got jokes, people. I was like, I got jokes this morning, okay? How do we know if the Bible is actually reliable, that it's accurate in the things that it says? I mean, honestly, after years of copies and translations, wouldn't it make sense that what we now have has been twisted or lost over all of these years. Maybe accidentally, maybe even on purpose. What about all the mistakes? Uh, There's a gentleman, his name is Dr. Bart Ehrman. Uh, He is uh, honestly a a pretty impressive New Testament scholar. Uh, He is uh, an agnostic. He might even describe himself as an atheist now. Uh, His mentor was Dr. Bruce Metzger. Uh, The two of them together actually compiled on Oxford Press, like the uh, um, text of the like New Testament based off of Greek manuscripts. Like all the stuff, it's like this massive, long, big old book. Um, he's actually the one who said that there's 400,000 errors. Uh, it's, it's in a book that he wrote uh, called Misquoting Jesus. Um, he's highly intelligent, um, but absolutely uh, does not believe uh, that Jesus was the savior of the world. Died and resurrected. Um, So 400,000. That sounds like a lot of mistakes, doesn't it? It is a lot of mistakes. So let's discuss how we get 400,000 errors. And if that's a bad thing or potentially a good thing. You're like, how in the world can it be a good thing? Let's talk. It all depends on what we count as errors and how we count them. Okay? Uh, Airman is correct you can find about 400,000 errors collectively across all of the Greek, ancient Greek manuscripts. Now let me define what a manuscript is, okay? Um, Oh, you're already, that's all right. Leave it up there. We'll talk about that in just a second. An ancient Greek manuscript is a handwritten copy. We have 5,800 handwritten Greek manuscripts. Some are full copies of the New Testament. Uh, Many of them are fragments of different pieces of books, okay? So we've got a huge amount of 
ancient Greek manuscripts for us to look at to help compile what we have here, whether we know if it's actually reliable or not. So um, when you start counting errors, let me tell you the kinds of errors that we count. These are common mistakes found in Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Number one, IE and EI often get switched just like we accidentally do all the time, right? You ever have that happen to you? You're writing a text to somebody and you're like, it gets mixed up. That happens uh, a fair bit within the Greek, or the Greek New Testament uh, as well in some of the old manuscripts. Lots of accidental misspellings. You see what I did there? <laughs> Thank you, whoever changed that. I told them, I was like, guys, that's a great joke. I should use that in the second service, and they changed it for me back there. Thank you. Yeah, uh, accidental misspellings, all right? We accidentally misspell. Well, okay, we purposely misspelled two words right there, okay? Those would be errors. Next one, phonetic spellings versus actual spellings, okay? Sometimes in some of these uh, manuscripts, uh, they would spell it phonetically rather than uh, um, correctly, uh, Last one, um, these are just a smattering of some of the potential errors. A uh, definite article being added, okay? So instead of it saying James, it says the James, all right? So uh, when we take all of those different errors and then begin to realize that many of those got copied on down the way, that's how we wind up with 400,000 errors. There's about 90, I think they said like 99% of the errors that we find fall into these categories. Super easy to recognize, not very difficult uh, um, to, to figure out what was actually intended or meant, uh, and we can often trace how, how those work. In fact, uh, Ehrman himself, in the book that he wrote, uh, another scholar actually went through the book that he wrote and uh, found that there were 16 errors within that book. And then Ehrman had sold 100,000 copies, so there's 100,000 copies. So by Ehrman's math, that means that his book has... 1.6 million errors. Now, is that fair to say that Ehrman's book had 1.6 million errors? No, 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 of course not. Uh, we're talking about the, the copies, and uh, even the 16 that, that we know of are easily identified and understood, and it's not like we don't understand what he originally meant in his big old book. Of course, we're able to understand that. The same thing is actually true of the scriptures. Well, there's actually only two scripture, or two sections of the Bible in our New Testament that scholars do believe were later editions. And if you were to open up your Bible right now, you would see that they actually, all modern translations, mention this. Okay, They're found in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. We actually don't think that those two verses were in Mark's original gospel. Okay, uh, John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, that story we don't think was actually in the original uh, manuscript that John actually wrote. Now, here's the problem, though. We have zero, zero original manuscripts. We don't have any of Paul's original handwritten letters. We don't have any of the gospel's original writings. None, okay? What we do have is copies of copies. That's what we have. You're like, well, then how do we know? How can we figure this out? This is what's called textual Criticism. So uh, let me give you uh, a little explanation of textual criticism, okay? Uh, this is Aunt Peg. Aunt Peg, not really my Aunt Peg, okay? Just, she's just for illustrative purposes, and she's an awesome illustration. Aunt Peg goes to bed one night, and she has a vision from God where God comes and gives her the recipe to the fountain of youth. Aunt Peg wakes up, 
Aunt Peg's old school. She ain't got no iPhone. So she grabs her journal and she writes down exactly the recipe, all 24 of the ingredients, exactly how the recipe is supposed to be uh, uh, um, kind of put together, what goes in first, what goes in next, how to do it. Uh, and then Aunt Peg actually makes the recipe, gets the elixir, she drinks it, and instantly she's young. She's so excited. Aunt Peg calls up her three pinochle pals. And Peg's pinochle pals, Penny, Priscilla, and Pamela, are so excited that they say, Aunt Peg, you've got to share this with us. So Aunt Peg, she ain't got no iPhone, so she's like, I'm going to be over right now. She drives over, she's got her pad of paper, soda, Peg's pinochle pals. And so they pull out their pen and paper, and they copy it word for word, everything that Peg has down. They write that down, they go and make the elixir, they drink it, they now become young as well. They in turn, are so excited, they want to go tell their friends. And so each one of them then gives, gives the recipe to 10 more people who also copy down the recipe, all right? So now we've got Peg's original handwritten recipe. We've got three copies of that original recipe, now each one of those three copies has 10 more copies. We've got 34 recipes. But here's the deal. Tragedy strikes. Peg's pug, who's straight gangster, eats the recipe. The whole thing, okay? They can't find anything. There's nothing left of it. Peg is devastated. She calls her three pinochle pals and says, hey, I need the recipe. To their utter shock and amazement, all three of Peg's Pinochle Pals pugs have eaten their recipes as well. There's no longer an original recipe. There's not even three uh, uh, copies of the, the first three copies of the recipe. But they say, it's okay. We gave some copies uh, to 10 of our friends each. And so they call those 10 friends and they get all 30 of those copies of recipes back together. But here's what they find. One of Peg's pinochle pals spelled cinnamon wrong. Thank you, baby. And now there's 10 whole copies that have cinnamon spelled wrong because they jotted it down exactly as they saw it. Uh, not only that, but we find that one of the 30 copies has 23 ingredients while the other 29 have 24 ingredients. Oh no, we've lost an ingredient. Which one's right? And another one of them says that you're supposed to ch uh, mix and then chop, whereas the other 29 all say chop and then mix. What level of confidence would you have that you could recreate perfectly Peg's original recipe? What's your level of confidence? I would put it at pretty stinking high. Not going to be tough to figure out that cinnamon should have been spelled correctly and one of Peg's friends just accidentally left off an M. Not that big of a deal. Uh, if I've got 29 of the 30 that have 24 ingredients and one of them's missing one of the ingredients, not hard to figure out that one of those ingredients uh, accidentally got left off. And if one of them says that you're supposed to mix it 
and then chop it? You'd be like, yeah, that doesn't even make sense. You can't mix something that hasn't been chopped up already. So uh, all the rest of them say chop, then mix. Well, that makes more sense. We could very easily figure out exactly what the original said. That, friends, is textual criticism. Okay? That's how we figure these things out. Now, when it comes to the Bible, all right, I want to show you a picture uh, and put it up with some other ancient texts. On the left-hand side, you'll see a huge yellow dot that's so big that they had to put, like, other text over top of it. That's the amount of copies, ancient copies, of the New Testament. Do you see there are 24,000? Remember I was talking about 5,800 Greek manuscripts? Let me explain why that one says 24,000. This is talking about not just the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, some in whole, some in part. It's also talking about all of the commentaries. It's also talking about uh, letters where early church fathers were uh, writing to discuss uh, some of these verses. It's talking about sermons um, that were given, uh, as well as early Latin copies and other things. As you can see, there are 24,000 existing copies, uh, ancient copies of the New Testament. Now let's look at some other books that you've probably uh, read either in high school or if you had philosophy class or uh, ancient history class when you were in college, you definitely would have written some of these. Uh, starting at the top, you got Plato. You know how many copies of Plato we have? Seven. Seven. All right. Uh, go around. Look at the really look at the other you know kind of big one, Homer. All right, that's the Iliad. You've heard of the Odyssey and the Iliad. All right, we have of Homer's Iliad, 643 ancient copies, all right? You can kind of see, we got a lot more New Testament copies with which to then make judgments on what's right, how do we figure this out. Uh, if you were to look over now at the actual like words up there, author text, existing copies, you'll see the next, the last one. It says, years between original and earliest surviving copies, all right? We have some fragments of the New Testament, handwritten manuscript copies that are somewhere between 40 and 70 years after the originals were written. Look at the closest next ones for any of the other ancient texts that are up on the screen. The closest one is Homer's Iliad, which is 500 years. We don't have a copy within 500 years of when Homer actually wrote the Iliad. Now, nobody's like, we're not sure if Homer was a real dude. We're not sure if the Iliad was a real book or if just some guys sat around and just made it up and described, just decided to tell everybody that it was him. Uh, we don't, nobody's making that argument. Now, when you look at the, the little amount of what we have on the right-hand side versus everything that we have on the left-hand side, scholars who don't even necessarily believe what the Bible says will still tell you that we are, at least with the New Testament, Above 99% sure that we have right here the actual original manuscripts. Now, I don't mean original in the sense that like we have the originals anywhere, but we can reconstruct them through textual criticism. The fact that there are that many errors is actually beneficial. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who doesn't believe this at all, actually acknowledges the same thing uh, in a different book that he wrote, not the one where he's trying to like destroy everyone's faith, uh, he says uh, this, and it's uh, fairly interesting. He says, uh, 
speaking of all these extra things beyond simply the New Testament Greek uh, uh, manuscripts, he says, all those things are so extensive, uh, are these citations, okay, coming from uh, quotations, commentaries, and sermons, that's what he's talking about, and other early treaties by, by church fathers. He says that um, even if all the other sources of our knowledge, speaking of those Greek manuscripts, if we lost all the New Testament, ancient Greek manuscripts, he says simply through the reconstruct, we could reconstruct the practice, uh, pra- why don't I just read this? They would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament, okay? Just the extra stuff we have. There's so much that's been written about it that we think that, in fact, most scholars put it somewhere above 99.5% accurate. That what you have in your hand is what was originally penned some 2,000 years ago. So, what are we supposed to do with all of this evidence? Let me tell you what I think that this actually means. Uh, this means that our New Testament is over 99% accurate. The entire text of about 20,000 lines, there's only 40 lines that are actually in doubt. Most of those lines actually show up in those two uh, passages that I already told you about that modern translations acknowledge we don't believe were in the original manuscripts. We think they were later editions, okay? Uh, None of those, though, affects any significant doctrine whatsoever. So, is the Bible accurate? Yeah, we think, at least when it's talking about the New Testament, shockingly, incredibly, unlike anything else that we have in ancient literature, accurate. Now, what about the Old Testament? Okay? Uh, do you want to know that we actually, um, we don't have a full copy of the Old Testament older than 1000 A.D. Now, we think it was written uh, 1400 to 400 B.C., okay? So we're talking, we don't have a full copy of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, that's about, 20, about 2400 years old. That's, that's a long time in between. Why is that, Okay? especially for uh, Judaism that, that's been around even so much longer than Christianity. Why? Well, here's why. Uh, ancient Jews revered God's word. And so when it got old, a scroll would get old, and um, maybe like a part of it would begin to break off or something, uh, they would then ceremonially burn the scroll, just like we do with the American flag. Okay, if you ever have an American flag and it's on your flagpole, it gets all tattered by the wind, you're not supposed to take it down and just throw it in the trash. You're actually supposed to take it down uh, and then, with reverence, uh, burn it so that we don't have the American flag laying in trash bins and things like that. Uh, Israelites took God's word, the Old Testament, very, very seriously the same way. So if a scroll began to get old, they didn't just like discard it where it could potentially be found later. Um, some would be ceremonially buried. That was pretty rare. Most of the time, they were burned. Okay, And the Masoretes, who were actually uh, Jewish scribes that uh, were the ones who actually hand-copied the scrolls, um, they, would, they would make another copy. Now, uh, the Masoretes were hardcore. All right? uh, they would not only copy it out and, and write it out, but then uh, every letter would get counted, every word would get counted, every sentence would get counted, and they knew exactly what letter was in the very middle of the book. And once a scroll was done, someone else would go through and count every letter, 
had to match up perfectly. Every sentence had to match up perfectly. Every word had to match up perfectly. And the center uh, letter had to be there. And if it wasn't, okay, then they would destroy the entire thing. So can you imagine spending like three months of your life writing out the Isaiah scroll and then like they count it and they're like off one. You're like, wait, did you really like count it again? Ah, they throw the whole thing away. It's destroyed. All right. Bummer. So uh, we thought for a long time, like, hey, um, what's going on with like, why aren't there any more of these scrolls? Here's what we found. Uh, 1940s, uh, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This is the scroll of Isaiah. They found an almost complete scroll of Isaiah that had been ceremonially buried, uh, probably when there was a, uh, in the Qumran community was, was uh, under attack, and so they didn't have time to, to take care of them the way they wanted, so they would put them in jars and kind of seal them up, and, and we happened to make this amazing discovery in the 1940s. That was uh, almost a complete Isaiah scroll. And so they went through and were able to now take one that they know was written somewhere around 300 B.C. to 100 B.C. Not exactly sure, but about 1,100 to 1,400 years before the, what we had originally thought was the latest full uh, writing of the Hebrew Old Testament. And when they put it together, here's what they found. Um, sorry, let me find where I'm at. Oh, they... Uh, after 1,100 years, they are virtually word-for-word word identical, only a few small copying errors and 13 minor variations. Amazing. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. Let's, uh, let's move on to the archaeological evidence. Cool? Like I said, this is going to feel more like a seminar this morning than a normal sermon, but I think it's good for us to engage with these questions. Um, okay, this is the question of, is the Bible trustworthy? Uh, there's way too much to even begin to list all of the interesting things, but let me give you just a couple of, uh, of things. Um, there is, so far, no extra-biblical evidence that Moses, Joshua, or the um, uh, Exodus ever actually happened. So is it possible that all that was actually just made up? A, a myth, a way to kind of like give the Israelites some like, uh, a backstory of how they wound up in the land and, you know, how, how tough they are and, and, and that their God did some, some cool things for them. So some would say, yeah, absolutely, that's completely possible. In fact, uh, we think that the exodus and these people and all the exploits that happened, that that's what's actually impossible, and there's no evidence to back it up. Then there's others that would say, well, actually, uh, we do have the Bible, and the Bible has shown itself to be relatively uh, important in archaeological stuff, so... Uh, don't say we don't have any evidence, but if you're going to discount the Bible, then, yeah, there's nothing extra biblical about that. The same thing was thought of King David. King David, they thought, was a myth. Okay? Uh, who's this dude? Super strong, tough, beats up a bear and a lion and, you know, takes down a, you know, a 10-foot a, a man, Goliath. Like, he's a mythical creature. He's just something that the Israelites thought up to like make themselves have some great stories from old and give them some things to think about, you know, a mythical. In fact, um, there's a, a gentleman, his name is Philip R. Davies. Uh, he wrote this in 1992. He said, there are no criteria for believing David to be more historical than Joshua, Joshua more historical than Abraham, and Abraham more historical than Adam. In other words, Davies thought that King David was as, as fictitious a character as King Arthur. All right? Until 1993, 
when they actually found the Tel Dan Stel. Had an inscription from the 9th century BC, which is right after the time that David would have lived, telling about a Damascus king, how a Damascus king had beaten the king of Israel and the house of David. Now there was ancient evidence that David had existed and it actually lined up historically with what the Bible had said in 2 Chronicles. Uh, you see, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Hear that. The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Just because we haven't found something that's 3,500 years old or 3,000 years old doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. We just haven't found it yet. Okay? And there's good reasons why we may never. All right? You're like, why wouldn't we find something about the Exodus? Well, uh, if you get your butts kicked by your slaves, you're probably not going to write that down in Pharaoh's, like, you know, book. All right? You're not going to do that. They always, we know, we have tons of examples where uh, things were, were, were talked about only on the good terms, not the bad terms. And so no Pharaoh's going to write that stuff down. Uh, not only that, but if you're traveling for only 40 years through a desert, Stuff that falls off is going to get eaten up by the sand. There's a good reason that nobody's like really doing some of the excavations in those areas. It's a huge area to even try to, to, to go and look at. So if you discount the Bible, then maybe you're not going to find any, but maybe you will one day. We just haven't yet. This is exactly what happened with David. For centuries, scholars thought David was probably just a myth, a made-up, until they found something that actually talked about the fact that was already reported in 2 Chronicles that a king from Damascus came and beat the king of Israel who was from the house of David. The very fact that he was mentioned as being from the house of David says that David was obviously a well-known and important character because they didn't mention the king's name, just that he was a, 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 uh, an heir to uh, the house of David. And it's right there in something that we wound up finding. Another interesting archaeological find helped show that the Old Testament had to have been written later or earlier, I guess is the right word, uh, than what some scholars thought. For years, scholars, many of them said, the Bible wasn't actually written in 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. And it wasn't written over that thousand-year period. It was written much later, probably around 200 B.C., as a way to, like, uh, amp up uh, the Jews who needed to, like, find uh, uh, themselves back in, in, the, in the land. And so they created all this backstory as a way to kind of give themselves some history, but it was probably made up, all right? Well, around 1900, uh, up until this time, nobody knew how to translate a word that's in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's this word PIM, P-I-M or P-Y-M, okay? Nobody knew what the word meant. Um, ancient scholars had no idea what it was, and so the King James Version um, that was written in the 1600s, uh, they, they simply made a decision that it must be a file because the whole context is uh, it's talking about what Israel needed to do when they would bring their uh, farm implements to the Canaanites to have those things sharpened. So they're like, oh, well, it, it must, Pim must be a file the way that they sharpened it, okay? Around 1900, though, uh, when they were doing some excavations, uh, a number of these things were found. It literally says on there, Pim, what they realized in the early 1900s, that this is a pim, and it was a weight. It was how much, because that's how you figured stuff out, like what, you know, this is a, this weight would tell you how much you had to pay. Uh, it was actually how much they were being charged to have their implements sharpened. All right? 
PIM weights were only used between, uh, they, the, they found them only in an area that was excavated that was between the 9th and 7th century BC. PIM weights had not been used for over 500 years. So if somebody was making this up in 200 BC, it makes absolutely zero sense why they would have ever used the word PIM because they would not know what a PIM is. It hadn't been used in over 500 years. Nobody knew what it was. The only way it makes sense is if it was actually written when we believe that it was written, which is around uh, 900 BC, at exactly the time that uh, uh, 1 Samuel was believed to have been written by Christians and Jews, that it made sense. And so now all of a sudden we had evidence that, oh, this thing that we didn't know what it was, that was only used at this particular time, which shows that 1 Samuel had to be written during this particular time, not much earlier. See, archaeological evidence begins to show us stuff that we wouldn't have known otherwise. And where people cast doubt and questions, all of a sudden some of that stuff begins to show itself. Same thing happened with Nineveh. Most people thought Jonah and Nineveh was all a myth because Nineveh didn't exist until 1845 when they found Nineveh and it's been excavated now for like 100 years and they know it's this massive city, but up until then it was like, ah, it's just a myth, and then they found it. So, let me say this. Um, this is from uh, a guy named Jeffrey Schaller. He's a journalist um, who did a thorough investigation on some of the modern debates and, and archaeological discoveries. He said this, without question, the scripture's portrayal of ancient Israel's kingdom era is remarkably well attested by the weight of modern archaeological evidence. The amazing abundance of inscriptions, artifacts, and ruins from that pivotal period unearthed during the last century has both corroborated and amplified the Bible's accounts of history. Um, I'm going to zip through the second question, partly because Austin mentioned it last week. Um, partly because I'm just running out of time. So here's this. Uh, does the Bible claim itself to be from God, inspired, that's what that means, to be from God, inspired by God, and authoritative, all right? So uh, I just want us to look at a couple quick verses. I'm going to flash them up on the screen. It's going to be really fast. If you care, um, then probably hit record on your phone, and you, I'm going to just say these verses really quick. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 all scripture is God-breathed. That's the word inspired. Remember last week when Austin asked the question, uh, who makes music, Dizzy Gillespie or the trumpet? The answer is both. That's why the Bible is both human and divine. It requires the breath and artistry of Dizzy Gillespie, and it also requires the hunk of metal that's been turned into a trumpet, Okay? The Bible is both human and divine. And this is what 2 Timothy says, that God breathed it out onto the people, the humans, real humans, who were writing it down, that had real experiences in a real culture with a real language at a real time. So 1 Thessalonians 2 basically says the same thing. So does 2 Peter 1, so does Psalms 119 and Matthew 4 and Joshua 1 and Hebrews 4 and Romans 15 and 1 Timothy 4. And I could go on. Jesus actually quotes the Old Testament about 100 times just in Matthew alone, which tells us that he believed that at least the Old Testament was absolutely authoritative, okay, worthy to listen to, obey, study. Very early on in church history, including parts of the New Testament, they're already quoting uh, the Apostle Paul and some others so that we think and recognize that they're seeing it as authoritative as well. So why am I telling you all this? All right, here's why. 
There's no way that I can prove, though, that the scriptures, this Bible, actually comes from God, okay? But there are some things that I think are fair to acknowledge. Number one, is the Bible, as we have it, reliable? Yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, more than any other ancient text by miles. 99.5% is the degree of accuracy we think that the New Testament holds to the originals, even though we don't have the originals. Number two, does the Bible, as we have it, line up with what we know about history from archaeology? Yes, at least as well or better than any other ancient writings out there. Does the Bible say that it is inspired from God and authoritative? Based on the verse that I just read you and all those other references that you can go look up yourself, emphatically, yes. Now, you might say, but isn't that a circular argument? The Bible says that it is about itself. Yes, it is a circular argument, but at least those of us who believe it are not making it say something that it has never said. We're reading it for what it says. The Bible does say that. Are there still holes in some parts of our knowledge? Yes. We don't have any extra biblical mention of Abraham or Joshua or the Exodus. But there's decent answers for that. And the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Lastly, are there some discrepancies in our Bible? What we have right here. Almost none actually. But those that are claimed are neither new nor hard to refute if you actually look at the evidence. Don't freak out if you start reading a blog on the internet, okay, or you read the Da Vinci Code, that's trash by the way, uh, or even from a, a really solid scholar who just disagrees with us, like Bart Ehrman, okay? If you read something like that and you're like, oh my goodness, they made such like, it's like a, a foolproof argument, like it's, it's, there's no way to like combat this, baloney. You might not know it, but I promise you there are amazing biblical scholars who that's what they do. They're not slouches. They're well-respected within the academic community, and they hold that this Bible is not only reliable and trustworthy, but that what it says is worth following and experiencing. But here's the kicker. It does require faith. I told you from the beginning, I'm not trying to argue anybody into like proving that the Bible is true and real. I can't. It requires, at the end of the day, faith. Have you ever seen somebody um, that's on an airplane for the very first time? You sit down next to him. I, I was on a flight not that long ago, and uh, there was a mom and her son. And it, you could, it was her son's very first time being on the flight, and he wanted to be by, which seat did he want? Window seat, exactly right. And he had the window open, and you could just hear it in his voice, the excitement, see it in his eyes when we took off. You could tell he was a little nervous at first, but then as we got up above the clouds, how just excited he was. You ever been with somebody who's flown for the very first time? You see, it's one thing to talk about flight from a scientific perspective, a theoretical perspective, the knowledge that it can happen. It's wholly different when by faith you step onto a plane and allow it to take off. And the same thing is true of our faith as Christians in the Bible. Yeah, I think even scholars that don't believe that what's written here is true will tell you that it's accurate and reliable. Okay? 
the faith to get us in the airplane and fly opens up a world we would never be able to experience otherwise, just as the faith to trust Jesus opens up a reality and life we could never experience otherwise as well. I wanna close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, speaking of Jesus' resurrection and the scriptures, said this, if false, the Bible is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I know that this Bible is trustworthy and reliable, but it is only by faith in acting on it and believing in the Jesus that is talked about that all of scripture leads to in his death and resurrection that it has changed my life. And it continues to do so. If this book isn't true, then you are absolutely wasting your time being here. You should stop showing up on Sunday mornings and sleep in and go do whatever the heck that you think is gonna bring you the most happiness because that's all there is to life. But if this book is true, then it is worth everything. Your life, your obedience, and in that place, you will find what I have found for the last 30-some years. Everything looks different. Father, let us not be afraid of this book. It is trustworthy and reliable. But Jesus, only the gift of faith and our acting on that faith allows us to experience how amazing it truly is. Father, as we continue to learn about your word, would you allow it to transform our minds and our hearts that our actual lives and actions would be transformed and how we love others the way you loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thanks for hanging with me on what is a definitely a different type of a service here. I'm super, super grateful for you guys uh, engaging. I hope you have a stinking awesome rest of your Sunday. And I can't wait to see you next week when we talk about how we got the Bible we have. See you next Sunday. <laughs>